We've been in this series in uh, the seven miracles in John, the seven miraculous works of John. And um, one of the things I want to remind or want to tell you is that um, when we talk about the miracles of John, uh, that he that he wrote, they're the miracles of Jesus written in the in the Gospel of John. There's these seven major miracles. If you haven't been with us for the series, John picks out seven of Jesus' miracles. As a matter of fact, listen to this: the very last verse in the the Gospel of John says this. It's in verse 25 of chapter 21. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That Jesus did so much in three years that the world couldn't contain the amount of books it would take to write how much Jesus did. He must have been really hitting it. You know, he must have been really busy. But John picks seven. Out of all of that, he picks seven things, seven miraculous signs of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why he picks those seven. And we've been kind of walking through those seven, and we're in the seventh one today. And, uh, and that's found in John chapter 11. So that's where we're going to be. But the, the whole uh, series that we've been in is God the Miraculous, the Miraculous God. And we've been talking about how God, the living God who we serve, is is willing and able to invest in miraculous ways into our lives currently. Now, one of the stories that you heard was the story of uh, when I was up at Brooklyn Tabernacle, and uh, there was the missionary who called us on Tuesday night while we were in the middle of a prayer meeting at Brooklyn Tabernacle, and he was up on the roof trying to get away from these, this guerrilla army that was coming um, to kill he and his family and we prayed for them and by the end of our prayer time he's still on the phone and he said I don't know what happened the guerrilla army just turned around and left and we were all freaking out like God answers prayer God is awesome he's powerful and I told you about the story of how I ran into him on the street when we were praying that he'd come down to here and speak to the pastors and all of that Jim Simbola, um if you uh, follow the story of how Brooklyn Tabernacle, that church, got started. The entire thing, spectacular story. There's just a couple of people in, uh, in an empty church building, and they just started to pray. And one by one, God began to answer prayers. And the entire church was just built on answered prayer. The story of that is written in a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Okay, And that book, we have stacks of those books at the door. And uh, we want you to take one per family. We don't have enough to go all around. And uh, leaders in the room, if, if you're an elder or deacon, uh, I'll, I'll get you one later. We have another order coming in, but Amazon got backed up on it. So, but everyone else, please, on your way out, take that book. Totally powerful, faith-building book to hear the stories of how God has intervened and answered prayer. It's one of those awesome, awesome uh, faith-building books. So we're looking at that in the Gospel of John. That's what we've been looking at. And today we're looking at the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And so we're going to stop now and we're just going to read the, uh, the whole story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Okay? Verse 1. I'm going to have you stay seated. This is a, a significant amount of reading here. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, 
It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he, is in the, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I just got chills, man. (laughs) Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Awesome story, isn't it? Incredible story. Please join me in prayer. Father God, I just ask that you would illuminate this story to us, that you would illuminate the story that we celebrate today of what happens in a few days when you rise from the dead, that God, you would illuminate in these few moments right here, God, your presence, living God with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So why was Jesus born? Somebody said something. To die and to save us? Definitely right answers. When you ask why was Jesus born or why did he come, there's actually a whole lot of answers that would be right. Because Jesus talks all the time about why he came. And the epistles, the letters, talk about why he came. I'll give you a list of a few of them. Jesus says that he has come to obey the Father, to fulfill the law, to do the works of the Father, to preach the kingdom, to seek and to save the lost, to serve and not be served, to testify to the truth, to bring fire to the earth, to bring a sword to the earth, to put away sin by sacrificing himself. That's just some of the things that Jesus came to do. John, the Gospel of John, highlights a few particular things. John has a different angle, always has a different angle than the rest of the gospel writers do. He, John is uh, quite possibly the last book written in the New Testament. And so all the, the other uh, letters and the gospels have been written. They've been circulating. It's been at least a decade since the, the letters have been flying around and since the gospels have been around. People have a general knowledge. And John, the last standing apostle, reflects and looks back and then gives a picture of Jesus that might be different, that might fill up some of the picture, that might show us some of the things that, that the church was missing. And after reflection and meditation from the man who was so close to Jesus for so long, he, he now writes his gospel. And in his gospel, here and in his letters, here's three things that John brings out about why Jesus came. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And that is awesome. You think about it, like when you think about all the works of the devil, the division, the hatred, the twisted nature in which we see intimacy, the lies, the deceit, the greed, 
the grave, death, came to destroy it. Like, just came to destroy it. Secondly, he captures this uh, statement with Pontius Pilate as he's standing before him in his trial. Pilate says, you are a king then? And Jesus' response in John 18 is this, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, I have been born. And for this reason, I have come into the world. It's awesome. He says, I've come into the world because I'm a king. Lastly, John 10.10. Some of you could quote that one. John captures this one in John 10.10. Here's the words of Jesus. I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Jesus comes so that our lives can be fulfilled, that they can be overflowing and abundant. Jesus comes that we have true life, that we have real life, that the works of the devil that crush our lives, that those works get crushed. That he takes the rug out from under the power of the devil which disrupts our life and brings us into a place of abundant life. God came so that he can establish his kingdom, so that he can remind everyone on earth and everyone under the earth and everyone around the earth and the cosmic powers that he can remind them who's actually in charge. That he is. And that he comes to undo the darkness and to give us life. And John captures that in his gospel. And so when all of the stories of John's gospel are being told, we understand that from the very beginning, John says there was this word that eternally existed in the past with God, and it actually was God, and that word became flesh in the person of Jesus. And that word was the light of men. And as we talked about Friday night at our Good Good Friday service at Tenebrae, the darkness has not understood it. But we also recognize that the darkness did not overcome it. And so even though we didn't understand God walking in the flesh among us when the king showed up to restore things, and even though we as people didn't do a great job of hosting him, and we didn't throw the party that we should have, we didn't do all that, it didn't suppress the fact that he was going to be king, and that he was going to reign, and he was going to destroy the powers of darkness, and he was going to give us the capacity to walk as children of the light. So this last miracle of John, see then what John does is he captures all these things that help show us that he's accomplishing this goal. That he is the king, that he is the light, that all life is in him, and that he's bringing light and life to us. And so when we look at these seven pictures, these seven signs of Jesus, John pulls them out specifically to show us how he's crushing darkness and how he's bringing light. Where was the first miracle that he recorded? What was, what was going on? A wedding. A wedding. This last one that he does, what event is going on? A funeral. His first one captured by John is a wedding. And Jesus helps them party where like, they don't know how to party. You know, He gives them the best possible wine and more of it than they had brought. You know? And he's like, I'm really going to help you celebrate. We are going to have a great time. This is worth celebrating. This is a wedding. This is life. And you guys don't even know how big of a deal a wedding is. And I'm going to make it a bigger deal than you ever knew. You don't even remember anymore what a covenant means or what the beauty of love actually is. And I'm going to help you celebrate it in a way you've never celebrated it before. 
And then, after just the diminishing of love and him restoring love, we watch it journey all the way through the restoration process of him destroying the works of the enemy and showing his power to overcome the, uh, the, the cruel weapons of the enemy that put fear in our hearts and make us live inside the shell of our lives, living half-heartedly, if at all. And we get to the end and we see this last story of Jesus, this last great sign, and he's at a funeral. Of all the things that should shake us, of all the things that we look at and say, well, this is the one that the enemy really has the grip on us with, right? I mean, we all know it's the great equalizer. We all know it's the one thing. And all other philosophies, whether we recognize it or not, are based on the fact that man will ultimately die. And when we start with the fact that man will ultimately die, it fundamentally shifts the way we live our life. And so Jesus comes to undo that lie and to break the power of sin and darkness and death. Now there's a couple things about this text that I want us to see, okay? Um, I want you first to to think about this, is that uh, when Jesus caught the news that Lazarus was sick, a couple things happen. First of all, he says this sin or this, uh, this sickness doesn't lead to death, which, of course, we know Lazarus does die, but Jesus is saying he's not going to ultimately be dead from this. And then it says because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he stayed two more days. Did you, did you catch that? But because he loved them, he stayed two more days. Which it's like, if one of, if one of my people is going to die, you know, one, like one of my family members or whatever, and I say, you know what, I'm uh, kicking it up here, so I love you, so I'm just going to chill and hang out, you know, where I'm doing what I'm doing. Someone's going to smack me and say, come on, man. You know, and yet this is why he loves them because of it for a couple reasons. First of all, because he knows that his job first and foremost is to submit to his father. And when he submits to his father, he does what is best for everyone else. And there's a lesson in there for all of us that when we want to love other people, it doesn't start with doing what people want us to do. It starts with doing what God wants us to do. The most important thing we can do to honor or bless or love anyone else is Learn and know what God wants from us and do it. That will always, inevitably, end up being the best thing for the other person. When we shortcut that and we play God and think we know what's best, we don't have the perspective. We don't have the universe in sight. We don't know how it all works. And so we can at times try and have a good heart and a good motivation and yet not end up doing the best thing. And so we have to stay very present, listening to the Lord and following the Lord. And, uh, but secondly, there's a real question about whether Jesus would have even got there on time. By the time they leave and Lazarus is sick, he's a couple journey, days journey away. By the time he comes back, there's a really decent chance Lazarus would have been dead anyway. And uh, it, that's what it appears like from the text. And so Jesus has this thing where he knows that something else is going to happen. And he tells the disciples this when it says he's going to sleep and he's trying to metaphorically show them that he's going to come back from the dead. They don't get it. They're like, he's resting. He's going to get better. They never get it. Neither do we. That's just kind of how it works. And then what happens is, is that he tells them he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. 
which is amazing because for, for Lazarus' sakes or Mary or Martha's sake, you might sit there and think like, I don't care what lesson you're trying to teach your disciples. If you think that the life of my brother is something that you can just mess around with in order to teach a lesson, that seems a little bit demented. Don't you think? Like, you know, that there's a sense of like, that really seems unfair. And there's a, there's a point sometimes in our lives when we suffer that no matter what the promises of God are about him bringing glory to himself, about the fact that there's a silver lining somewhere in the sovereignty of God for this thing and that we're to be thankful in all circumstances and we're to trust the Lord, there's a part of us that really, really struggles whether we're honest with ourselves about this or not. Some of us are easy, it's easier to be honest with. But somewhere deep inside of us, all of us struggle when we realize that God allows difficult things to hurt us. And even though it might be the result of sin and darkness and our own choices, we still know that God has the power to stop it. And if he's a good God, why doesn't he stop that from happening? And, and somewhere inside of us, like a child who doesn't know how to trust a parent when things are difficult, we struggle to trust God. We struggle to trust Him, all of us. And to hear Jesus say, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there to stop it. Man, that's just hard to hear. But lest we think that God is insensitive, we need to read further. And, but before we get there, I just want to remind us that as we mature in faith and as we grow in faith, we watch God deliver and we watch God take care of us so much that what can happen in a mature believer's life, someone who's walked with Jesus and trusted God, is that we can get to the place where in the midst of our difficulty, we don't, we're not feeling great about it, we're not happy about it, we're struggling still in that place, but we learn to say, Though he slay me, though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I worship him. Yet will I honor him. And yet will I follow him. And so what happens here is, uh, have you ever heard of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata? Some of you have. She's this woman who uh, took, a, took a dive out of a boat and ended up paralyzing herself. She was a quadriplegic, stuck in a, in a wheelchair uh, for the rest of her life, and she's uh, had a wonderful ministry where she went and taught people all the time. And a big part of what her teaching was was about joy in the midst of suffering. And there's this great quote from Johnny Erickson Tata who says, um, I, I, I love what she says here. Uh, if I can find it, I had a quote somewhere. I do actually have notes. I just don't ever look at them. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata, she says, I don't care if I'm confined to this wheelchair provided that from it I can bring glory to God. Because I think what Johnny Erickson Tata realizes is as fun as it is to swim and as awesome as it is to give someone a hug and all of the things that are awesome about, about a body, there is nothing that is more innate within a human being than the desire to glorify God because it was for that purpose that we were made. And so when Jesus says he comes to glorify the Father, he makes us that we can glorify him. And that is our purpose. And someone who grows and matures in the faith starts to zero in on what it, their role is in life, is that the most amazing thing that can happen is when somehow God is revealed in all of his glory through my life. 
And when that happens, I'm in touch with the Creator. I've found my destiny. I'm one with God, and it is an awesome thing. And that's why she's like, yeah, of course I want to be out of my wheelchair. But if in this wheelchair I can glorify God, then I have what I need. And if in this wheelchair I can glorify God more than, man. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China who went through just brutal things in his life. He says it like this. He says, trials afford God a platform for his working in our lives. And without them, I would never know how kind, how powerful, and how gracious he is. And I think any of us who have walked through suffering with God recognize that, right? So, but there's still this question in us that says, even though God redeems our suffering and is present within our suffering, how can he be okay with using that as an example, allowing Lazarus to die as an example to teach? That is still a hard tension for us. No matter how much we see God's redemption, that's a hard tension for us. Well, lest we think that he's insensitive, if you continue to read on, what happens is, is you get to this spot where first in, in verse 33 it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus didn't take this like, I'm going to heal him so it's not a big deal. I'm going to teach these guys, don't worry about it. Your brother's dead. It's not a big deal. I don't know if you've ever had anybody try to handle you like that when you're in the midst of suffering. Like God's got a plan. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Stop crying. God's got a righteous right arm, man. About to catch one in the... And, um, you know, there's, there's something to be said about the fact that God does have the right, seeing the whole universe, to parent us. We do not have the right to handle one another. You know, we don't have the right to just kind of offhandedly be like, yeah, God's got it. Don't worry about it. That's insensitive. That's insensitive. That's not from faith. Because Jesus, with all of his faith, knowing that God had heard him, knowing what he was about to do, was greatly troubled and moved. The words here that are used in the Greek, what they, what they indicate is when a horse gets really stirred up and angry and starts to snort and snarl. Greatly troubled. That's the picture. And it actually should, that's the, it's the word for it. They had like a word that meant when the horse does this, and you can picture like the stuff coming out of the horse's nose and like he's stamping his foot and he's angry. And Jesus begins to weep and he begins to cry. It's not just over the lack of faith that people have. It's not just over the mourners who were hired to come and mourn. It's not just over that stuff. It's that Jesus looks around and he realizes the damage and the toll of sin and of death and of the grave. And he's looking around and he knows that this is what he came to conquer. And he's staring it in the face and he's seeing it in the face of those who he loves. And when he sees it, it makes him angry and it should. I remember when I had this moment, and I've, I've said this before, but it's been a few years. I'll share it again. I remember the, the moment when um, Jen's mom passed away. Um, Jen's lost both her parents to cancer. And when she lost her mom, we were first married. And um, I didn't know what to do as a husband. Didn't know how to, how to help her. You know, I was not very good at being sympathetic. I didn't really recognize how to, how to do that. And I, I was just praying um, with the Lord, and I... I was really struggling with this whole concept of like, should we be praying for her to be healed 
Um, why are you allowing this to happen to her? You know, all of those questions that people go through. And at one point as I was praying, I was like, God, I just need to know what you're thinking in this situation so I know how to pray and so I know how to handle um, being present with my wife in the midst of suffering. And so I just closed my eyes and I said, give me an image, God, of what it is that you see. And my imagination went to a place that I totally didn't expect it to go. When you ask God to help you with your imagination, sometimes you you, you, kind of see stuff in your imagination you weren't expecting to see. If you're really trying to concentrate on, it's like, what would you do right now? And what I saw was God just weeping, just weeping. And I realized, man, it's okay for us to to feel like this is horrible. It's supposed to be horrible. And maybe she's not going to be healed in this moment. And I'm supposed to grieve because Jesus says, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, that the greatest of all of his enemies is death. That the last enemy of all is death. Jesus hates death. He hates it so much that he cries out, out loud, in anger and disgust, and he screams at Lazarus, come out of the grave. And when he says it, there's a militant tone in his voice. There's tears streaming down his face. This is not a passive God who's saying, I'm teaching my guys a lesson. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. This is a God who's present, who's weeping, who's angry, and who knows that God will deliver, but still feels the depths of horror and pain of our sin, and of Satan's tools. That's the God who we serve. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Before we get back to the rest of the story, I just want to tell you, when I was preparing for today's Super Bowl, or whatever, I was really convicted by this guy at the, um, at the pastor's group who was like, you know, Easter's not about what we preach. It's not about how good we preach. It's about how good our God is, essentially. And... Um, and it's really important for pastors to remember that. It's important for all of us to remember that, that it's, it's easy to get stuck on the religious patterns rather than the reality of a living God. And uh, so, but I went back and I wanted to listen after that to um, my previous messages, uh, Easter messages. And I, I just li- wanted to listen to the first couple minutes of the last few, you know, we record all the services. So I went back over the last four years and just listened to like the first two minutes of the messages. And it was really interesting. They all had kind of the same hook. There's like a hook at the beginning a little bit. You know, you set it up. You set up like, what am I going to talk about? And why does this matter to us? You know? And they all had the same thing. It was kind of this sense of somewhere in this kind of general thought, have you come to the end of yourself? Have you lost hope? Have you suffered? Have you experienced pain? Is there any part of you that's struggling in faith? Has there been moments where your passion for the Lord has waned? Have you wondered how to deal with your suffering or the suffering of those around you? Well, today is your day. Stop and look and see an empty tomb and realize that for all of our difficulties, for all of our questions, in all of our doubts, there is one answer, and it is an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And that's essentially how I've started the messages. And man, that is true. Man, that is so true that in our moments of questioning, our moments of darkness, we need to remember a resurrection. And our text today shows us that for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, for all of them. But there is a lot more to Easter than Jesus rescuing us from our dark hour. There's a whole lot more to it. 
And as I meditated today, uh, this week, uh, on Easter, I realized that so much of the reason why we struggle with remaining on fire with the Lord, connected with the Lord, is not just about processing difficulty. It's not just about the grief and the pain and the sorrow. It's that whatever the power is that helps us endure, that helps us persist, that helps us be faithful in obedience to the Lord is a thing that we often lose touch with. And what I mean by that is that there, when it comes to walking with the Lord, a long obedience in the same direction where you're the master and I'm the servant, you're the creator, I'm the created one, you're the parent, I'm the child, and I'm going to follow you and stay connected. We have a hard time figuring out how to stay in that for the long haul. And it's not just about the fact that there's death and destruction. It's that we can become bored. We can become uninterested. We can become distracted. And when we become bored, uninterested, uninspired, distracted, we stop being faithful. And when we stop being faithful, we stop feeling God. And when we stop feeling God, we stop understanding why we're doing what we're doing or what this is all about or why I even exist, why I live. And so we look for something else to begin to spark our vitality, to grab our imagination, to inspire us. And man, does Satan have so many awesome ideas for how to spark our imagination. And none of them lead back to being present with God. I'm just going to read a little bit of what I wrote down about that. Things that are driven by felt need are subject to the volatility of our circumstances and emotions. When we engage God because he takes care of us in our hurt places, then when we don't feel the hurt, we don't feel the need. And so when our circumstances are volatile, so is our connection to the Lord. One of the biggest dangers of the consumer age that we live in, the time that we live in, is that our natural desires, the things that are deep, the cravings that are inside of me, become central. Let me explain how this happens. Truth in our world takes two forms. One is what we know from empirical evidence. You know what empirical evidence is? That's observed observation, uh, uh, observation of the natural world. And so when we observe the natural world, we take data and facts from, from history, from science, from studying our bodies, from all of that, that's empirical evidence. And all of that helps us form what we understand to be truth. The problem with empirical evidence is what? What's the problem? Us. We can only see so much. And so what, what caused us to die 10 years ago is now supposed to be the cure for what causes us to die because medicine changes all the time because our research changes because we learn more and grow more and know more. And the more we know, all of our paradigms shift all the time because it's based on our perspective and our perspective is constantly growing, changing how much information we have. 
So what happens is, is there becomes this thing, and it's happened to us consistently, is that there's this sense that truth is elusive, that we can't quite get a hold of it, that I'm sure there's truth and reality out there, but I can't quite get a hold of it because I can never see the whole picture, and no matter how much I can hold at the same time, I can't put it all together and discover what the reality is. And so I have nothing actually to stand on. So then, what I have left, is what I really desire deep inside. And I can know that, and I should live from that spot. Be true to yourself. Know what you really want. And so truth becomes for us this core thing inside of me, how I truly feel, what I actually desire. And somewhere between the loss of empirical evidence and the deep desires in my heart, we get spun all around. So from a biblical perspective, we need to understand that what we desire is immensely important. You know, God cares so much about what we desire. Because he tells us that we are supposed to love him with all of our being. That we're to desire him with all of our being. Our desires actually really matter. But we're told in the scriptures that we have command over our emotions. We are told what to do with our desires. We are told that when it comes to pursuit, we are told what to pursue, what to desire, how to feel. And we've been told this other thing by by other philosophies that says what you feel is who you are. And what you desire is what you have to chase. And so what we do and what happens to us is we get to the place where I'm like, I got to have a job that I really enjoy. You know, and I got to have, I got to have a spouse who completes me. And when I stop feeling like that spouse completes me, it might be time to look for another one. And any of you who have gone through broken relationship don't hear that as judgment and condemnation that's not the point talking about the way we think in the world we need every channel all the time so that whatever we want to watch we can have on every device everywhere we go and man does it market well and right now we're struggling our identities we want to change our identities the way we change a channel on a tv Whatever ideology makes me feel good, I hold on to. Whatever gender works for me right now, I hold on to. I'm not picking on that. But it's the reality of where we are right now. That our core identities, that the things that we desire at the core, they are all over the place because what's happening to us right now is we were made to seek, pursue, love, and desire our God And when we think that we chase truth and define truth by what I think and by what I want, we get really confused really fast, and pretty soon we don't know what we desire anymore. We just desire more and more and more and something to stimulate us and something to make us feel alive. So i got to find a new desire, a new passion, a new thing, something to make me feel alive. And underneath of all of that, the Scriptures call us to something. It calls us to submit our desires, to submit our emotions, to submit our pursuits, to submit all of it to one thing that's deeper, and it's called truth. 
And that truth is not something that's discovered through empirical evidence. It's not something that's found by searching my soul and trying to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to do. This core lie that I believe exists says this at the core of it. It says, the customer is always right. That's what it says. And then there's this grand assumption that we make that we are the customer. And therefore, we are right. And therefore, we should be served the way we think we should be served. And when God doesn't make sense to us, that's God's problem. Because it has to be that how I feel, he has to fit into And so often when I'm looking at a situation, instead of running to the scriptures to understand it, I assume that God must make sense somehow according to how I feel and how I think because I'm the customer. Today, Easter, what happens today is on Easter, all the cosmic powers and all the philosophies of our world, underneath of them, there is a lie that gets exposed. And it gets exposed not just by an empty tomb, but it gets exposed by a living, breathing, touching, eating, and talking Jesus. See, it's not just a theology about an empty tomb, and it's not just the fact that there was a resurrection. It's that a guy who was dead, who claimed to be God, ate fish which means he didn't rise as a ghost or as a spirit somewhere in the afterlife. It meant he had a body on him. It meant that Jesus is actually alive and that somewhere, in some place, somehow, this is the radical, crazy belief of a Christian, if we're actually a follower of Jesus, is that that Jesus who can still eat fish is somewhere. That he's actually alive right now. And he can still eat fish. That's the God who turns the whole thing upside down that says the customer is not always right. The master is always right. And that the master has the power over death and over the grave. So the culmination of the gospel, and this is where we close it out today, The culmination of the gospel of of John is absolutely spectacular. If you turn to John chapter 20, you got to hear this verse because I told you what he does at the beginning, what his, uh, you know, he's showing that Jesus, the word become flesh, the light and the life. And through the signs, he shows all the power of Jesus. But when you get to the end of the book, John's starting to wrap up the book. Jesus is risen from the dead and he's proven to everyone uh, now, you know, all the stories about Jesus rising from the dead. You know, the story of Thomas, the one who said, let's go down back to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. You know, the, uh, Thomas, he, he wasn't there when Jesus shows up in the upper room and he doesn't see him and he says unless I see him I'm not going to believe him because we all know that believing is seeing whatever um eight days eight days later verse 26 his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them and although the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and he said peace be with you and he said to Thomas put out put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now listen, this is the verse. This is why, where John tells us the whole point of the book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his book so that we can have life. That's why. John knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they had told us everything about Jesus. They had told us all the stuff that, that Jesus did. They told, us, he, they told us the stories. But John goes back and writes yet another gospel because he realizes that there's something about the story that we're not getting a hold of yet because we're not living in the fullness of life. And so he's like, Jesus came that he can crush the devil. Jesus came because he's the king. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came that you may have life. I'm telling you all these stories that you may believe in him. And when you do, you may have life. And it brings us back to the story of Lazarus where Jesus looks right at Martha. And when he looks at her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives in and believes in me shall never die. What does it mean to live in Jesus? To live in Jesus. We, we were talking, we had the boys, Jen and I and the boys, we, were, we went through the Gospels. Uh, each one of the last chapters of the Gospels yesterday just listen to him so that we could hear all the different perspectives in the resurrection and then we were like when jesus shows up in the upper room what would it look like for us what would happen if right now and i just want you to do this with me for a second what would happen if i'm sitting here talking you know doing my thing and you know we're thinking about the sermon and thinking about whatever else we have going on today or whatever and all of a sudden right here jesus shows up in body and he's standing right here This is really hard to imagine, to actually like imagine how we would feel and how we would act. You know, it's hard to, that's something that we've never experienced before, so it's hard to know. But what would happen if Jesus, and somehow we knew it was Jesus, we saw the wounds, you know, he would look different than most of the pictures we've seen of him, I'm sure. And what would happen to us? And that's what we talked about in our house. What would happen? And what would change in our lives having seen him? What would happen? And Jesus invites us into a place where the belief in a risen Savior should change us. I told you that was going to be the last thing, and uh, it, it, it isn't. <laughs> because I, I just, I, I, I'm not allowed to leave us um, without saying this one thing. And it's in, it's in the very beginning of that story with Lazarus. It's... Um, It says, now a certain man, this is the beginning of chapter 11, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Do you know when that happened? When Mary anointed his feet? It hasn't happened yet in the story. It's the next chapter, chapter 12. She does it when they throw a thank you party for Jesus because of what he did for Lazarus. 
So here you are in the story, and he's telling us, in order to give us context about who Lazarus is, he's telling us who Mary is when we haven't even heard the story about Mary yet because the story of Mary had become so famous at that point that everyone would know who Mary is. Legend would tell you who Mary is. And so he's telling us who Mary is so that we know who Lazarus is, the guy who Jesus raised from the dead who's less famous than Mary, his sister, who wiped his feet with her hair. And the reason I say that is because part of what's going on in the text here is before we wonder whether God's in control and whether God's good and whether he meets us in our darkest hours and before we're afraid to follow Jesus through our darkest hours, John gives us this clue and says whatever this story is that's about to unfold, you need to remember that the end result of this story is one of the greatest acts of worship that you've ever seen. And so as we stay present with God and as we attend to God's presence, as we are very aware of the reality of God among us, it will turn us to a place of thanksgiving. And Mary is to us the example of what it means to prioritize God, to see God, to acknowledge God, to see what he's doing and to be present with him and a model of thanksgiving. And I would encourage us and to think that on this Easter that what it says to us is not just that Jesus can overcome and that God is an overcomer, not just that there's light in our dark hours, but what it means is that Jesus is alive and can still eat fish and that he's here. His spirit moves and that he calls us to follow him still and that our pursuit of God is the primary action of our life. And that of all days, this is the day that we remember that God is not a religion. God is not a theory. God is a living being who is calling us to himself. And so today we celebrate, yes, we will live forever by trusting him. But today we remember that if we live in him today, we will have abundant life that he's with you at your Easter dinner today. And if you want to know how to interact with your family, ask him and he will guide you. That tomorrow when you go back to work, if you got to go back to work, Jesus is alive and he's going to work with you. And if you want to know how to engage work, ask him. He's happy to guide you because of the resurrection. He's with us. He's good. He's alive. And he comes to give us life and life abundantly because that's who he is. He is life, abundant life the resurrection, and the life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Mary. We thank you for her response. We thank you for how it teaches us and how it shows us who you are. We thank you that Mary responds to you appropriately because God, I know that, man, we serve a living God and I don't know how often I don't see you. You know, you say to Thomas, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. God, I ask that you would today give us the great gift of faith, that you would help us to grow in believing that you exist and that you are a rewarder of those who earnestly seek you. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we close, we're going to be singing the doxology. Josh is going to sing us through the doxology. I had someone show up after service a couple weeks ago and tell me that for two years they've had a question that they believed God put on their heart for Parker Ford Church. 
And they said, we talk about the kingdom of God and how to live with the Lord all the time. But there's two things that he, that he wants us to ask of him. Do we believe that Jesus is God and do we believe that he rose from the dead? And the Sunday school answer to that's real easy, you know? The personal answer is one that we each need to ask God. What does that mean for my life? If he's God and if he rose from the dead, what does that mean? We'll respond with the doxology.